You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. The Athletic. Jordan, you're a great professional, but tell me you're going to get absolutely rotten tonight, like me. <laughs> Possibly. Oh, Come on, Jordan, go for it, lad. Enjoy yourself. Hey! Cheers, Karen. Go on, Cheers. What a mad period this is uh, for football. The biggest game in the domestic calendar called off as fans make a point at Old Trafford. We'll look at that, the impact on fixtures, uh, Quebec, Salah, the club's financial results. They're all on the cards on today's Red Agenda with James Pearce, uh, Simon Hughes and Kiva O'Neill. I'm Steve Hoversall. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic with a special 40% discount. Just for listening to our podcast, you'll be able to read all the great articles on Liverpool, including James's recent piece on Mo Salah and how he could be set to miss a huge chunk of next season. To access all that and much more, go to theathletic.com slash Liverpool pod. Sign up with a 40% discount. That's theathletic.com slash Liverpool pod. So the biggest fixture in world football is postponed. Quite a statement, James. Talks on going over a new date for it, but actually just the point of this fixture being postponed. How successful was this protest? Well, in terms of making a point, I think it was it was emphatic, wasn't it? You know, regardless of what the two clubs have won in recent years, it's it's still the biggest fixture in English football. You know, the two absolute heavyweights in terms of fan bases and and viewing figures around the world so for the game not to go ahead i think has left you know anyone an absolutely no doubt about the strength of feeling about the way in which the supporters are, are, are being treated really and in this case obviously manchester united fans i think you i think it's important to say that clearly a, a section of those fans who protested went too far you know some of the scenes were absolutely despicable in terms of you know the bottle throwing and you're seeing police officers get hurt but you, you can't tarnish everyone with with that brush you, you can't lose sight of the fact that the vast majority of were very passionate you know law-abiding football supporters who who just care very much for their club and I think even despite the tribalism of football I'm sure a lot of Liverpool fans would have seen that and and understood where they were coming from because um you know, of course, for United, it's not just about the Super League and, and 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 what the Glazers tried to sign United up to for that. It's it's everything that the Glazers have been about for the last, what, 15, 16 years. I mean, when you look at the figures that, you know, what, what is it? They've taken over a, a billion, billion pounds, I think it is, out of United with, you know, the debt they've piled on the club and all the the the, the interest and everything that's been paid since. So, um, you know, I think there was a, a tipping point, wasn't there, with the Super League and... Yeah, I think hopefully this will lead to to some significant change because um, yeah, that, you know that that you know that that was powerful what happened on Sunday and it would have reverberated all around the world. Yeah, but there's some unpleasant points to it, and, and as you absolutely say, no one condones any of that. But Sai, I suppose how else do supporters get themselves heard? 
if they don't do something like this. And I don't mean the bad points. I just mean generally congregating en masse, showing their feelings towards how they feel their club's being run. Well, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I think that everything that happened on Sunday was a natural consequence of the Glazers, FSG, all the other owners' decision to pursue this, the Super League. I said a few weeks ago, uh, when it when it all kicked off, that you know that they were endangering public safety by doing this. You know, because the people are going to turn up and, and protest, uh, not least from a pandemic point of view, but naturally going to be strong feelings. I mean, I, I'm not, obviously I don't condone violence of any kind, but I can understand why it would happen. I think it has to be said as well from the reports that I've seen from eyewitness reports were particularly heavy handed with it as well. So I, I just feel, unfortunately, that this, this event was going to end up with this situation and the people responsible for it aren't the protesters. It's the people who made the decision to try and shift the landscape of, of world football as we know it. So they've got this on their conscience as far as I'm concerned. So sadly, the more unpleasant aspects of the protests, which obviously you just mentioned that the the, the, the small, relatively small amount of violence is going to take the national headlines. And it's disappointed me that a lot of news organisations in the country have decided to, to follow that lead rather than the reasons why people are doing it. Uh, and speak more about sort of the, the, I don't want to say isolated incidents, but the angle of the protest that the people would rather not have happened. I, I think it's a major issue that's affecting our sport and uh, our football clubs in this country. I think that this this is going to carry on until until there is change now. I think there's a line in the sand now. I think, I think as you mentioned, James mentioned there, it, it made me think a lot about actually the Glazers and, and FSG, obviously with Liverpool and Man United playing each other. And I mean, I know that they, they both obviously got the, the hands dirty with what happened. But I mean, it did make me think a little bit about FSG and, and how, if you compare the two clubs to what they took over, I mean, the Glazers have been terrible owners of Man United. I remember going to Old Trafford six, seven, eight years ago and looking around and Old Trafford needed modernising. You know, that the ground has been, has fallen into disrepair. You just scratch beneath the surface and you'll see. And that they have put virtually no money and just taken, taken, taken. Now you could say FSG at least have, have, have sort of have done things to progress Liverpool. They've invested in the infrastructure. I was going to say, so you, you wouldn't compare FSG to the Glazers, would you? You can do because they've been in cahoots together. Joel Glazer and, and, and um, John Henry have obviously been talking a lot together. So you can, understandably, a lot of people just say they're part of the same package. But when you actually look at what they've done for the football clubs... I would say that FSG have been far better owners of Liverpool than the, the Glazers have of United. And I totally understand why my United fans have just had enough now. It's, it's enough. Unfortunately, I do feel the ship sailed a long time ago. And if you think about 2005, when they took over, there was obviously a huge reaction to that. And yet the club has, has sort of coasted for a long time. Bad decision after bad decision um, off the pitch, which is affected on the pitch. Poor leadership. And I think, I think fans, understandably, have had enough now. It was always going to end with a flashpoint like this. You know, for me, the, the focus needs to be on that because, you know, football clubs in this country are important to, to, to the sense of place and community more than any other sport and institution, I, I think, that exists in each, each town or city. So there's a fight on our hands, I think, now to, to ensure that it isn't taken away totally from 
from from what we know because it feels like it is. And you know, fair I, I say fair play to the organizers of the, the, the protest because uh, I think it needs that for people to stand up and notice. Ollie Kay's written a really good piece on the site. He says football's at a tipping point. Kiva, when you when you heard the game was going to be cancelled, were you glad about that because it made a point? Or were you frustrated because you wanted to see the biggest game in football? What, what, what were your feelings about the game actually being called off? And they said, you know, it was going to go to half six kickoff or something like that. And, you know, it was a bit of a weird weekend, wasn't it? Because obviously it was a social media boycott. So you weren't hearing things as you normally would. And then when it sort of said that, I was like, I hope it doesn't go ahead. As soon as they said, oh, we're going to try and delay it and try. I thought like too much has happened on this day. This day needs to be remembered for this protest rather than a football match, which really does in, in the grand scheme of things just feel quite insignificant football as this season anyway, for a lot of, a lot of reasons. But I don't know, I think like Ollie says in that piece and a lot of us have been saying it, it does feel like a tipping point just because obviously... You know, this Super League's kind of, it's probably been a blessing in disguise in a way because, you know, these these protests and people having, having the say on these things, they, they were happening, but just at such a low level, people weren't even hearing these, you know, these things that were happening. You know, you, know, you always knew United fans weren't happy with their owners, but that was just like, oh, yeah, every sort of season it feels the same. But now it feels like, no, it's not the same anymore. They're really unhappy and they want something to change. Um, and I think, you know, that's what you get with Arsenal fans as well, Liverpool fans, you know, all these fans. Now, even fans of other clubs, it's kind of you taking a little bit more of a look at the ownership and, you know, just how football is going and the way we don't want it to go. And I think, you know, I thought when it, you know, was eventually postponed, you were kind of waiting for that to happen. And I was glad that it did because I don't know, football, I think that match would have would have overshadowed what had, what had gone on, kind of like, in the way Simon mentioned, you know, the, the odd trouble causer that went there and, you know, caused damage or whatever. Unfortunately, they take away from the movement, which is, you know, it's always going to happen. People will go and just want to cause trouble. But I think, you know, the match getting postponed was definitely the right thing to do because I think the main talking point has to be has to be that and not the football. We're recording this pod before we know what's happened with the meeting with SOS and... Um... Of course, Liverpool CEO Billy Hogan, and we're recording it before we know what's going to happen with any sort of rescheduling of, of this game. Possibly, it's pretty hard, James, isn't it, to, to reschedule this game if you look at the fixture list? Yes, yeah, not not easy. You know, obviously, as we're talking now, that no no date and kickoff time confirmed, but it, it, those discussions are, are ongoing behind the scenes, complicated by obviously the fact that United are. Are still in in Europe and preparing for the second leg of their Europa League semi with Roma and the lack of kind of available midweek slots. So there's been some talk of potentially shifting uh, West Brom Liverpool to to a, to a midweek to then free up some time for for the for the United Liverpool game to be to be rescheduled. So um, yeah, waiting on on that one to to be confirmed. Okay, and and Sai, in terms of the the meeting, you, you'd love to be in that meeting, wouldn't you? Just just to see the conversation between the supporter groups, obviously led by SOS. I think I think they've pretty much all come together, haven't they? Spy on Cop and all under the SOS sort of banner for this, uh, and Billy Hogan. Well, it's, it's fascinating, I think, because you know, in the past, I think Liverpool supporters have have um, led really impressive campaigns not only well on a variety of issues um, not least 
against their own owners. You know, we, we saw it with Hicks and Gillette and usually Liverpool are the sort of the first to, <laughs> to sort of protest when something's wrong. Um, and I think sometimes that's contributed to other football clubs not following suit when it means that they're, they're trying to achieve a greater solidarity because there is a culture, I think, in this country of thinking, oh, Liverpool are doing it, they're just moaning again. Um, so I think it's it's good <laughs> that the, for, for once it's supporters of other clubs who are leading the, the charge, you know, Arsenal, uh, Manchester United. Um, and I think that that both means that go, going into this meeting with Billy Hogan, uh, the Liverpool supporters have quite a lot of leverage, really. I mean, I just find it absolutely incredible that I've never seen a plan backfire as spectacularly as this. I mean, the, the owners are probably going to end up getting the opposite of what they wanted. Uh, they're going to have to be more open to to dialogue with the supporters now. Um, I don't think there's any, they have to show that they're going to be. I think the people who will be sitting in the meeting with Billy Hogan, they're, they're certainly not fools and they're used to dealing with sort of high level business people behind football clubs. So, Billy Hogan's going to be under a lot, a lot of pressure now. I've got a bit of sympathy with him because, you know, the, the whole scheme to go and join the Super League certainly certainly wasn't his idea. Um, and he's in his first sort of six to 12 months in, in charge as the CEO of Liverpool and is now having to deal with the fallout of that. Um, whether he knew about it, of course, is, is a very different matter. And whether he advised about it, I, I wrote about that last week. And I do think that that matters. But it's going to be interesting for him. It's going to be very tough for him. I think he's going to be on the back foot in that meeting. It's a spectacular own goal by by Liverpool. And it's going to be interesting as well. The other angle that I, I find quite interesting is that there's going to be a lot of pressure on these clubs to try and maybe allow some influence of supporters on the boards of these clubs. And I think there's going to be a lot of goodwill that goes to the first club that decides to do that. So it might be in Liverpool's interest to try and think about that a little bit because if they're the first club to let supporters onto a decision-making process like the board, we use the term the board all the time. I mean, I don't think it's like it was 15, 20 years ago where a load of old greyheads sat around the table discussing the future of Liverpool. I think it's more Zoom meetings across America, but I do think that they would be helping themselves, the owners, if they were... A bit more open to uh, to dialogue from from the fans because I think they, they do do that, but not at the sort of the end point of decisions. And I think it would lead to a better ecosystem around the fragile and unpredictable waters of Liverpool if they were if they were willing to to offer some sort of influence to 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 fan groups. Kiva, would you would you support that? Do you want to see someone from one of the fan groups? on the board, greater decision-making power? Absolutely has to happen, doesn't it? I'm not sure why there hasn't been a fan on the board for years, really. Just someone just to say, do you know what, that's not going to go down well. Fellow and staff, it's not really not really good good luck. I don't know why there hasn't been that person there to just say all of the things that the, you know, because usually the city has, and Liverpool fans, I do think, have kind of like a collective identity. So they do think in the same way for a lot of things. So I feel like having someone to represent that voice, which is, you know, it, it is different as well. There are different opinions and views. But, you know, for a lot of things, you do come together and it is a collective sort of vision. I think to have someone on there, it's just, it's been a misstep not to have someone. Of course, there's then like, you know, there's other questions probably that need to be asked. And maybe why there hasn't been fans on the board is because of secrets and discussions and things that they don't want the general 
population to know about. So there is all that sort of thing that they'll have to weigh up and probably that's been a lead factor as, as to why they haven't had a fan on. But maybe they need to get someone who is from a business kind of background or, you know, just someone who can understand sort of what's going on and, and know that, you know, no information's going to be leaked out. So I think that's probably their main concern, isn't it, maybe? But I don't, I think it's just been, you know, like I've said, they're just such a misstep not to have someone um, representing Liverpool fans on the board of, of the club. Right. Another big thing on Billy Hogan's mind at the moment, James, and you've written about it, is the financial results. So this is the club's accounts up to May 2020, so arguably just before COVID really hit. So maybe the next set of accounts would show more problems. Um, some interesting stuff in there. I mean, not least the fact, and I picked out the line you'd written about, £71 million they got for getting to the last 16 against Atletico Madrid. So you, you don't qualify for the Champions League this year. You're £71 million out of the pocket? Yeah, I, I think that kind of graphically illustrates, doesn't it, the, the difference between being either part of Europe's elite or on the outside looking in. I think... Um, for this season, I think I think you're looking at in excess of sixty million pounds. They will have they will have pocketed, and um, yeah, you can you can still earn a, a decent amount if you were to go a long way in the Europa League. But you know nothing nothing on that same scale. And I think I think the important thing to say with the accounts is that it is only a, a small insight into the the real financial impact of the pandemic because it, those figures do only go up to the end of May. 2020 so it was uh you know a 46 million pound pre-tax loss uh revenues down 43 million but you know you, you're talking there what, what was that what's that two and a half months of the pandemic i think you speak to people at liverpool and they'll tell you that, that they see the kind of the true cost of covid in excess of 100 120 million pound in lost revenues and and still climbing further so um yeah, I think there was a number of things that jumped out at me. One, one was the fact that you know the wage bill continues to rise. You know, I think from you know, three hundred and ten million in to the three hundred and twenty-five uh, million pounds, which you know again only Manchester City now have got a bigger wage bill than than Liverpool in the Premier League. I think you know sometimes there's you know almost people always say like you know where's all the money gone? You know where you know where are the marquee signings and all the rest of it? And it's like well, you know it's it's all there in black and white. You know Liverpool you know, to, to have put together this squad and to keep a squad that's won the Champions League and the Premier League costs a huge amount of money, especially, you know, bearing in mind in this period, Liverpool kept on winning. And we know that Liverpool's contracts are all he heavily incentivized. So, yeah, I think, you know, clearly they, they suffered a real whack in terms of media revenues and, and match day revenues. You know, probably the, the one kind of positive thing financially was the fact that commercial actually went up 15%. But you know, Liverpool's I think overall drop in revenues was was actually not as severe as some of the other big clubs when they've reported their figures, and that was because Liverpool signed eight new partnerships, including you know one big one with Cabri and and Nivea and Carlsberg renewed their deals as well. So um, you've also got other elements that maybe don't jump out at people, like the fact that they've paid off you know twenty five million pounds towards the new training ground. They've paid off another, I think. Eight million pound off the loan to FSG for the new main stand. So yeah, not a not particularly positive financial landscape, but which I think just provides context to probably what what ultimately led John W. Henry very mistakenly to decide to pursue you know first project big picture and then the Super League because um, 
yeah, I think clearly these things were already on the agenda long before the pandemic struck, but I think certainly the pandemic probably speeded things up. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Thanks for listening to The Red Agenda. I'm Steve Hothersall, Kiva O'Neill, James Pierce, Simon Hughes on the pod as always. And uh, we, we talk a lot about Mo Salah on the pod. Why wouldn't we? Um, particularly this season, the goals he's been scoring. James is out of looking at, at a piece on next season and perhaps the, the games in which he could be missing or the periods in which he could be missing because there's some big international commitments. So, James, just outline, first of all, what... What are we talking about? How much of the season could Liverpool be without Mo Salah? I think the big one that Liverpool are waiting on at the moment is whether he does travel to Tokyo and be part of the Olympics because Egypt, want, they've named him in their preliminary squad. They want him to be one of their three permitted overage players for what is essentially an under-23s tournament. Is it big for him? Yeah, and I think that's the dilemma, isn't it? Because we know how much representing his country means to Mo Salah. And I think certainly it wouldn't have reached this point if he had no interest in going to the Olympics. You know, he, I don't, you know, he wouldn't just get named in a preliminary squad unless they'd had some, you know, some indications that he, that he is interested in, in, in representing his country at the Olympics. And, you know, we've seen it before that, you know, other players, obviously Xavier Mascherano, you know, he, he went to the Olympics and won a gold medal, didn't he? So, um, yeah, I think it's just it's problematic for Klopp because you don't have to release players for the Olympics. Liverpool would be well within their rights to say no, but then you you run the risk of almost disillusioning and and, and annoying a player that you you're relying very heavily on. So um, that's a decision I'm told hasn't been taken yet. Klopp and Salah will sit down and talk about that in the coming weeks. But it would mean that essentially he was missing for the whole of pre-season. And if Egypt were to go to the latter stages, you could have a situation where he doesn't report back to the training ground till less than a week before the opening Premier League game. And, and then, then you've got the Arab Cup in November, which is essentially a test event for the Qatar World Cup. Now, the good news with that is, you know, I, you know, I, think, I think there's already an acceptance that because it's not within a structured FIFA um, window for international tournaments that clubs, European clubs won't release players for that. So I would, I'm not expecting Salah to go to the Arab Cup in November, but he would then go to the Africa Cup of Nations, which is in Cameroon in, in January. So, um, and I think maybe, yeah, just because of how crazy this season's been, you probably forget that, you know, AFCON has been moved, I think, at least twice already because of the you know, first of all, it was moved because of the the climate in Cameroon. It was moved from the summer back to the to to our winter, and then obviously moved around because of COVID. Um, and I think you know that has got to be a serious consideration for for Klopp and Michael Edwards when it comes to this summer, because um, yeah, the fact that you know you think of how integral Salah has been to keeping Liverpool's season just about alive this season over the course of this campaign, you, you know, you're, you're probably, well, you're guaranteed you're going to be losing him for four, five, maybe even six weeks from early January to the middle of February. 
Sai, how could we forget that you've been on a bus across Egypt and uh, met lots of people who love Mo Salah? On the relationship between Mo and his country, I think that's probably the interesting thing here, and James referred to it, the need for him, perhaps the, the need for him to be involved in the Olympic team, or it's obviously important to be involved in the African Cup of Nations, but his country will be pulling towards him to actually have that involvement. Yeah, I mean, he's the most famous sports person in Egypt, I mean, the, the, the one thing that that really sort of blew me away when I was there was was the appetite for football. I mean, I know people say, oh, certain countries are big football countries, and sometimes I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in in, in Egypt, <laughs> it's a total and utter obsession. I'd say more so than in this country. Just some tips of everybody's tongues all the time, and there is a lot of pressure on him in that position particularly at this time, I mean, I've spoken about it before, about how the country politically is in a very good place and he has to think very carefully about what he says and every decision that he makes. Because let's not forget, he's, he's still got family who live in Nagrig. He, he needs to serve his country properly and he is he does care about Egypt as well. So he obviously played for Egypt in the 2018 World Cup, which was their first World Cup in 28 years. So at that time, it was, it was a big disappointment the way they performed in Russia. And the pressure to deliver for Egypt is enormous and he's right at the centre of it. It's just as important, I would say, as his, as his club football. So it's not something that he, he doesn't take seriously, I think. You know, sometimes in this country, we have a tendency not to to maybe not think of international football as, as the zenith anymore, but... That isn't the case in Egypt. To, to play for them is, is very important to your Egyptian. And given that Salah's the, the most important player, arguably the most famous player that the country's ever produced, he can't afford to miss many games. So I, I would think he'll be pushing for, for, to, to, for his inclusion in all the major tournaments and, and be aiming to perform well. He won't be going through the motions. So it puts Liverpool in a, in a tricky position. I mean, uh, as James touched on there, the, they've got a, a few players who are going to potentially be missing because of the, the Africa Cup of Nations. So it's something they need to think about when they enter the transfer markets in the summer because they certainly can't afford to be missing players at key stage of the season because we've seen, <laughs> you know, year, year on year, Liverpool have performed pretty indifferently, I'd, I'd, I'd say, post-Christmas. And it, it's the, the part of the year that Jürgen Klopp finds most difficult. So... Uh, they can't afford to have Mo Salah, um, Sadio Mane and anybody else sort of missing um, for, for a, at least a month, five weeks. It's, it's just going to derail the whole season. Well, hopefully one player that won't be missing next season is Virgil van Dijk, Kiva. And Jürgen was asked about him last week as to whether he'd feature uh, for the Reds before the end of the season. That seems pretty unlikely, but still the question mark exists about perhaps any international involvement. Jürgen seemed to throw a line in there, maybe suggesting that no one should force him, and that would be too much of a call for him to be involved in the Euros. It's going to be interesting, isn't it? I think, um, you know, especially with the, the 26 man squad now, you, you'd think the Netherlands would just be interested in taking him just for that sort of boost of him being there. But in terms of whether he'll be fit enough, it just it's not yet known, is it? I, I mean, I love that video of him moving about to, to Fleetwood Mac at Kirby, really enjoyed that. But you don't want him going into next season having like come back too early and then he just can't sort of get into the rhythm. I think, I don't think anyone's silly enough to make a, a, a rash decision and, and put him in when he, when he's not 
back to full fitness. It could be one of them where towards the end of the Euros, yeah, he, he is fit enough to sort of start featuring from maybe off the bench. But I think in terms of where he's at, like no one really knows right now. So it's interesting. What is he like probably six months in now to his recovery? They usually take nine to 12 months, if not longer. You know, people I've chatted to for pieces of work done in, in the past few months it sort of seem to suggest that it's not until 18 months that a player can can really get back to sort of where he was. So, you know, you're not just looking at Virgil van Dijk coming back and this is going to be an, an overnight sort of problem solved. He's, he's back and he's all right because, you know, there's still a lot to work through isn't there for him and you know no one wants to see him rush back before he's he's fit and ready because I think that that poses the threat of you know getting re-injured and it's not even getting injured in in the leg that he the knee that he's injured in the, the risk of his other knee now with the more pressure on it and things you know all those percentages have, have risen so you need to get him to where he's he's safest and if that's in three months from now and he misses the Euros, then I think so be it. And when he does come back, will he have Ozan Kabak playing with him? You've, you've done a piece looking at how Ozan's grown within his role at Liverpool. What, what do the stats and the analysis say about how he's acclimatised to Liverpool life? I think there's kind of like, you know, stats sometimes tell a different story to how you view a player. And I think one stat that was interesting is that Ozan Kabak is actually really fast. I think on the eye, he doesn't look as speedy as he probably is, but he's among, I think, the top 5% of, of centre-backs in the league for, for speed. I think it takes him a couple more strides to sort of get up to top speed, but he is, in fact, fast. Um, you know, all the other signs in terms of his, his stats all look promising and positive and when you compare him to Canata, You know, a lot of things are pretty similar. You know, they're the same age and a lot of the, the, the stats are showing, you know, he, he is a a really young but really good footballer. And one, I think, that sort of has grown so much in, in recent weeks. You know, when he joined Liverpool, no one was expecting, you know, him to be keeping clean sheets every week. We knew that, you know, that wasn't going to be... You, you just added in, you that you know, the, you know, it was a deadline day, a bit of madness. And, you know, we haven't even seen Ben Davis, have we? Kabak's come in, stepped up alongside Naf Phillips, who's also, you know, played really well. But I think the positive signs he's shown are quite remarkable, really. For I don't know, he came in with a pedigree, didn't he? Already attached to him, even though he'd spent the season shipping goals with Chelka, who are obviously now relegated. You know, to come in and step up to the level of, you know, even Liverpool's high line and how tricky that is, and you know, playing on the left where where Van Dijk usually plays. You know, he's filling in for the best defender in the world. Like that's that's a difficult thing, and I think sometimes we can sort of over-criticise, over-analyse these performances. And I think what he has shown is he's a very good defender. And when you do kind of think of, you know, Van Dijk, we've mentioned there, he might not come back for a few more months up to the speed that he was at before. Um, you've got Matt up there as well and Gomez. And, you know, they were all major serious injuries that they're coming back from. So I think in terms of going into the summer, we know finances and what what's going to happen in the window. We don't quite know, but... You know, with Canate likely coming to Liverpool, you'd think, you know, Liverpool would take the, take the plunge and bring Kabak in as well, because I think he's shown definitely enough to be someone who can be depended on mm. um, and be someone good to have in the squad, especially with Van Dijk, Mathab, they're, they're not getting any younger, are they? 
We're sponsored for this episode of Walk On by LinkedIn, so it's only right that we crowbar in a reference to Liverpool's super slick recruitment process while we talk them up. Because when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like Arnie Slot, probably. In any given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. In fact, on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash walk. That's L-I-N-K-E-D-I-N dot com slash walk to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Right, let, let's talk about some younger players. Let's talk about the academy and uh, the work that Alex Inglethorpe's doing, James. Liverpool, got, they have got one of the best academies. I mean, you see that with the procession of players that, that come through it. Um, you, you've been speaking with Alex about how much things are flourishing there. Yeah, always a always great to have a chat with with Alex Inglethorpe, and um, yeah, it really is it really is continuing to blossom. Um, the youth setup at at Kirby. It was interesting chatting to him about obviously with Brexit, the, the the kind of dynamic of youth recruitment is changing in terms of no longer are clubs allowed to go and sign under eighteen players from from overseas. But you know, from Liverpool's perspective, not not much changes really. You know, although. You know, there was a couple, wasn't there, last summer with Frauendorf and Muzalowski. But, you know, by and large, Liverpool have long since been about focused on bringing through homegrown talent. And Kiva was obviously at Anfield for the, the Youth Cup win over Arsenal on, on Friday night. And, um, yeah, the, the, the massively impressive thing for me is that, you know, nine members of that FA Youth Cup squad have been with the club since the age of six or seven which is a remarkable retention rate, really. And I, th- I think it shows that the value of that they've, they've put a lot of time and effort and resource into getting the pre-academy recruitment absolutely spot on. I think you've got to give a lot of craze to Ian Barrigan, who people will probably know him for, you know, he was quite rightly gets the plaudits for kind of spotting Trent Alexander-Arnold and, and helping nurture him at an early stage. And, you know, it's, it's a really competitive area with, you know, you know, I think up to under 12s, you can only recruit young players who live within an hour of your training ground. So, you know, you're battling with Everton, you're battling with Man City, Manchester United are obviously the, the main ones. But yeah, I, I, think, I think when you talk to the staff at Kirby as well, you know, there's a really, really good structure there that, that helps potential to flourish. And, you know, the big thing for them as well is, you know, Trent is the absolute perfect selling point when it comes to speaking to to parents of kids who may be in two minds, what offer to accept, you know, when when they can point to a, a kid who walked in the door at the age of six and who's now, you know, a Premier League title winner and a Champions League winner, you know, that's that that's pretty powerful. And um I'm sure Kiva will talk about her, you know, she did a piece on James Balagizi, who's, you know, right up there for me is the, the really, really exciting talents that are coming through. And um, yeah, I can't wait to see how they kick on in the coming years. Yeah, tell us a little bit more, Kiva. And, and obviously that, that youth cup run, it's important, isn't it? You talk to the likes of Carragher or Owen, they always talk about the youth cup and what it meant to them. Yeah, I think it's massive, isn't it? Because it's just before... Maybe you make that step up to, you know, the under 23s or probably what used to be the reserves. I think for experience and just, you know, I mean, Liverpool's season now, you know, is almost 
depending on on these lads maybe bringing the youth cup home which is remarkable really for the only potential trophy I know um obviously the women failed to get promoted and we know what's happened on the men's side of things so you know these under under 18s are now our our hope for a trophy and you know just watching them on Friday there's just so many talented players you know in that squad you look at the defenders like Comercio's in there who, who had maybe a little bit of a rocky start to the season but is now performing sort of back to the levels we saw this time last year um, you know, all over the pitch, there's just exciting players. Someone like Max Waltman, who's basically, you know, stepped into sort of um, where Leighton Stewart sort of left off because he went to the under-23s and then he unfortunately injured his ACL. You know, he, he's come into that that team being on the periphery of it for a lot of the time. He's, I think he scored something like nine or ten goals in his last few appearances. You know, ridiculous. The, the scoring goals for fun. Um, and I think it does, does bode really well for the future. Um, I was sort of just watching, obviously, Balagizi on on Friday and was just so impressed with his energy levels of anything. You know, he'd be on the right wing and then he'd be at left back, basically, you know, helping out. And he was all over the pitch. And I think the most positive thing was that his teammates just kept looking to him to give him the ball. And like, you know, you go and do something. And, and he did. Obviously, he made two assists and I think he, he'd scored a hat-trick in the, in the last round against Leicester. And, you know, it was crucial to that that 1-0 win over United as well on the way. So he's been absolutely, you know, fantastic. He's been a star player. And there are those players as well. You know, James mentioned Musilovsky and Kai Gordon, who's obviously cup-tied for this. You know, there's, there's so many so many exciting players coming through and I think sometimes you know when we do pieces on the young players you get people commenting saying like oh they're too young they don't need the hype and that kind of thing but it's like you know we need to shine a light on the work that's being done here because you know they might not all make it they probably won't the percentage to make it to the Premier League is very very small isn't it um but I think it's important to you know give them their moments because they're having them in abundance at the minute so it's it's definitely important to to shine that light I think you're going to get hyped, Si, aren't you? If you're at Liverpool's academy, have you, have, who have you been most hyped about? Well, <laughs> if you think back to all the academy years, he, he loved Danny Pacheco. <laughs> Harsh, did he? He's a nice lad. He was nice, nice lad, Danny. He was a nice he lad. Was a nice lad. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what Kiva says there. I mean, I, I've written a few times about the the academy, and you do get this sort of strange reaction where, oh, we can't hype them up, and it's like, well, merely by writing about them, you're not hyping them up. You. As Skiva said, you're shining a light on what's going on there. And I'm not being funny, but if, if a player is going to come and play for the first team, they're going to have to get used to some sort of media coverage one way or another at some point. So otherwise, you know, they're going to have a, a rude awakening when they, when they step into the first team environment. So that's part of football now. And I think, you know, I'd like to think that we all cover these things responsibly. Yeah, I mean, to answer your question there, Steve, I mean, the, the, the one player that jumped out at me straight away when when I saw him for the first time was Curtis Jones. I just I just thought he's got that little bit of spark and edge to him. And I thought, you know, he he's got a great chance providing he he, he sort of knuckles down and, and takes the right advice. Um the other one who I really liked who, who never quite made his mark was Jordan Rossiter four or five, six years ago because he had a a great attitude. I remember Cara saying, you know, sort of quietly that in training he really put his stamp down in, in on, on training and wasn't afraid of, of like speaking to the senior players and, and trying to direct the play. And sadly, you know, he he sort of 
probably got injuries at the wrong time and, and maybe made some career moves. I don't know whether he, he does regret them. And I know James interviewed him uh, last year, but I, I had high hopes for him. I thought he might have a chance, but sadly his career hasn't gone the way he wanted it to at Liverpool. But I agree, Steve. I mean, I, I, I think at the moment, I mean, if you've got two players in the academy, as Liverpool have in, in Trent and, 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 and Curtis, who... You know, for my money, are going to be long-term Liverpool players. You know, the academy's obviously done something right over the last ten years, and and James is right to mention uh, Ian Barragan there because he's the one who's who brought not just Trent but but Curtis to the club, and um, I think they've got a good handle on what's going on locally and have got the upper hand over the 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 regional rivals at the moment. So um, so yeah. But I just think people have got to be patient, haven't they? You can't put them all in at once. Be very lucky if you put them all in at once and you strike upon success. I still think you need that that experience uh, in the first team um, and a, a mix of age groups uh, in the first team to, to to kick the team on and the, propel them towards the success that the fans demand. Loads of great stuff discussed on the Red Agenda today. James actually asked for some of your questions. We didn't get through them, but we've got loads of them that might stick around for, for next week. So thank you very much for sending them in. They are, they are good stuff. Um, just one from Ian Doyle who said, what was it like meeting Darth Vader, James? People will have seen your, your TV encounter with Darth at the weekend. It was a real thrill. Yeah, another one, another one off the bucket list. Yeah, brilliant stuff. Um, Sky TV with James Pierce and Darth Vader in a park. It was well worth a watch. Uh, right. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, Kiva side, James. That's the Red Agenda, and it will be back in a week. The Athletic.